This is John Halsman, and welcome to our foreign policy blog. Uh, we usually have this on Monday, but I'm scrambling to catch up with you guys this week. And the main reason is the world is beginning again, and I'm going to hit the road soon, and I will keep you abreast of this. And on the days I'm traveling, it will be a lot harder to talk about specific things, and we may have to wait a couple days for content. We're doing five and five days at the moment. And as I travel, that may be more like three and five days, but I will also keep you abreast of a great part of my job and political risk, which is the travel. And you forget this because it's been two years where I've been under glorified house arrest. But our first trip, we will be heading off, and I will give you my impressions of it, to Miami. We're going to Palm Beach to run a war game, which is one of the great things my firm does. We, we do these foreign policy simulations and I learned this from the CIA, the National Security Council, and the White House playing war games in my speed chess days in, in Washington. And I took these games and have adapted them for businesses, uh, for how business can look at political risk. And it's a great creative product. And I'm playing this, this game for one of my favorite international banking clients. And we're going to play a game on what does the world look like after Ukraine. And so I will let you know of my adventures as we go. But this one is to Miami. And then after that, steadily, I, the, the firm is everywhere all the time, but I'll be going out on my own at least once a month. I'm a player manager, <laughs> and so I will be doing that. But if, if we miss a day here or there, please bear with us. You're still going to get more content than in any other comparable newsletter out there. I promise you that. And this week, we're going to scramble to keep up because I just completed the war game. And we're laying out our American midterm election predictions, and... This can be locked under the rubric of the great quote from Herbert Stein, who was an economist who was chairman of the Council of Economic Affairs for both Presidents Nixon and then Ford, who famously said, if something cannot go on forever, it will stop. And this is a truism that really should guide a lot of political risk. You can lock in predictions and be confident of them when the moving parts are unlikely to change in the political time frame you've got. And even though today there's been an announcement of a massive change, it won't change the overall outcome. It's, their leaked document has made it clear that Roe v. Wade, which has governed nationally the abortion law of the country since the early 1970s, is set to be overturned by at least a 5-4 majority, if not a 6-3 majority. It depends on Chief Justice Roberts and how he rules. That's not clear. But there have been texts written, and there is a strong majority, at least at five and maybe six, to overturn Roe v. Wade. And this is, of course, a social, legal, and political earthquake that will certainly gin up Democratic Party support. The base, which had been very lackadaisical about Joe Biden's tepid presidency, will now be energized in a way it certainly wouldn't have been before because Roe v. Wade is totemic to the Democratic Party. You can argue it's totemic to the Republicans, but the Republicans were more energized and likely to vote anyway. So this certainly will help the Biden administration and the Democrats by getting their base out to vote in midterms, which is always the trick, because bases, although many more people vote in presidential elections, than tend to vote in congressional elections. So this is a moving piece out of nowhere that has changed and in favor of the Democrats. Saying that, we still predict a Republican tsunami in the midterms because this one piece of news doesn't overcome many other pieces of news I'm going to lay out now in line with Herbert Stein. If something can't go on forever, Democratic dominance 
it simply will stop. And that's what's going to happen. The tea leaves are there to be read, though you might not know that from looking at the mainstream press, which tends to say, a la the Cook political report, yeah, the Democrats are in trouble and historically they lose seats, but it's not going to be that bad a deal. The problem with this is the people interpreting this for you are White House reporters. And if you look at the average reporter, and I already know this from the 1,100 interviews I did at the time, I've now done 1,500, most media overwhelmingly swing to the left. They're either social Democrats or somewhere around Trotsky. And I'm not kidding. Let's remember that in 2000, more people who were reporters voted for far-left candidate Ralph Nader than for Republican George W. Bush. This is the most left-leaning institution in the country other than academia. And so through their lens, they're desperate to downplay the problems of the Biden administration. And this is because of conviction, the way they look at the world. It's not a conspiracy. It's simply how they look at the world. But they are not an unbiased source. I think those days of Walter Cronkite are, are well over. I don't see Edward Murrow anywhere, though I wish I did. And so people on the left looking at problems on the left are inherently, personally, psychologically likely to downplay these problems. And that's what they've done. Here is the rational, factual argument for why Herb Stein is right and the Democratic dominance cannot go on forever. First, history. Since 1870, immediately following the American Civil War, there have only been four elections out of 38 in midterms in which the party holding the White House either gained House seats or had a net loss of less than five. Five is the advantage the Democrats have in the House now. So let's repeat this. Since 1870, in only four out of 38 times, have the party in power in the White House gained seats or limited their losses to less than five, meaning that in 2022, the odds are historically four out of 38 that the Democrats retain the House, meaning nothing. Because a couple of those examples really don't work. First one was under Bill Clinton. We accept he was his code name for the Secret Service was Secretariat. Bill Clinton was a political genius, the political genius of his generation. That's not normal. And no one would accuse Joe Biden of being the political genius of his generation. Second, one of those four times was with George W. Bush immediately after 9-11 when the country had rallied around the flag. That also is a unique historical circumstance that raised all boats for the Republicans. And a third example would be FDR in 1934 after the successful launch of the New Deal in the first 100 days of legislation when the country was firmly behind Roosevelt, again, the political genius of his generation. That's not what we're dealing with here. So I can explain away the few exceptions, but the odds are four out of 38, the Democrats hang on, 34 out of 38, the Republicans take the House. And in fact, I know no political operative privately, either Democrat, independent, or Republican, who thinks the Democrats have a ghost of a chance holding on to the House. The Senate is more in play. The only question in the House, is it, a, is it a little loss or is it an overwhelming loss? Our firm is saying clearly here, having called the 2020 election perfectly, a small win for the Dems in the House, a small win for the Dems in the White House, and we called our crowning glory. The Senate is a 50-50 tie. We got it down to the senator. An unparalleled record. One of the best days my firm ever had. Well done, political team. I'm still very proud of you for that. And we're putting that record on the line. But we have form in predicting this. And our prediction is a Republican tsunami 
taking the House with an elite of 30 seats, 30 to 40 seats, much greater than the numbers you're hearing presently from the mainstream media. And at the same time, we think the Senate will be very close. Senate races aren't nationalized. They, they conform to quirks, and a third of the senators are up at any given time. And it just happens this time that the Democrats have fewer seats to defend, and the seats they're defending were tend to be won by Biden. Given all that, we still think the Republicans will take the Senate at 51 or 52. They're going to gain one or two seats. So a one or two seat majority in the Senate and an overwhelming tsunami of 30 seats in the House. Why do we think that beyond history? Second thing that matters is the presidential approval rating. In the modern era, Tip O'Neill's injunction, all politics is local, is wrong, absolutely wrong. The key indicator of our last generation as to how the House races will go is the president's approval rating, a national rating. It is a referendum on the new presidency. And historically, as we said, why is that number 34 out of 38 times the party out of power gains control of the House or gains seats in the House, at least? People have buyer's remorse. Americans are innately small C conservative. They like divided government. They like checks on the executive branch. After two years, the new administration is either off to a poor start, in which case people blame it for that, or they're off to a frighteningly good start in which people want their power checked. In either event, buyer's remorse tends to kick in with the American public psychologically. 34 out of 38 times is a pretty good indice of that happening. The presidential approval number is the second biggest number. We check this daily. This is the temperature of the presidency. And the rule of thumb in Washington is a presidency that has a rating above 60% can tell Congress what to do, and below 40% has to prove that it's relevant. 60 and 40. 60, the president's in charge. 40, the president's struggling for relevancy. At the moment, Biden is at 42 in favor, according to Real Politics, Real Clear Politics aggregate of polling, 42% favorable, 53% unfavorable. And that number tends to be holding steady now that with Biden between 40 and 42, barely relevant, barely above the coma level and the base of the Democratic Party, as was true for Trump. Ironically, Biden's numbers track Trump's 38 or so percent will support whichever Democrat or Republican does anything. And so Biden is really at the bottom level of his support with no sign of that number going up. And if this election holds with the last generation, this national number is enough to knock down House seats too and make it greater than the mainstream media would have you predict. And then third, the policy problems Biden is running into are unlikely to be undone by November. It's a timing thing. A first inflation has gone up. Biden owns this issue. Larry Summers has been proven right, and the eternally wrong Paul Krugman has been proven wrong, as he so often is. Inflation resulted here, and yes, Putin and the energy crisis and the food crisis have made things worse. The Chinese bottleneck and the unraveling of the one uh, just-in-time manufacturing globalization supply chain has made things worse. But basically, the American government, afraid about COVID, threw gasoline onto a fire, Prime the pump in a Keynesian way, adding 15% of federal spending to an economy that has bounced back at about the rate it was before COVID. Well, that's going to lead to inflation. The math is the math is the math. And Biden badly misgaged this. The Fed badly misgaged this and then said, this is transitory. They're on record as analytically being Krugman-like and they're being wrong. 
And as a result of this, they own inflation. They can blame Putin for this from now to the end of time. And in poll after poll, the American people don't buy this. Biden owns inflation. Inflation is well over 8%, the highest rate in 40 years. Biden's team have unwittingly loosed the beast of inflation and the cost of living crisis to follow on the American people. And as Jimmy Carter found out in the late 1970s, stagflation, because at the same time we've had incredibly negative growth rates in the first quarter, stagflation rebounds against the people in power. And that's going to happen. Secondly, crime. Another issue the Democrats are traditionally weak on and own. The far left of the Democratic Party, the squad, the progressives at all, are where the action and the excitement come from, but a lot of the lunatic ideas. And defunding the police, which of course is now not Democratic Party policy, as they've scrambled back from this idiocy, but certainly cutting the budgets of police, which many big cities did, invariably run by Democrats, has led, surprise, surprise, to a crime wave. If there are no policemen, there's going to be crime. And who's affected most by crime? African-Americans living in cities. And it's no surprise that this is a group that is moving away from Biden in droves. No, they're not embracing Republicans. They simply aren't excited about Biden. And the crime wave he loosed upon them by idiotic ideas of Chardonnay-drinking liberals that you don't need policemen in the inner cities. Anybody who's been in an inner city would know better. But progressives don't do that. Champagne liberals, champagne socialists don't do that. And so crime rates are way up and people blame the party in power, particularly when part of that party talks about lunacies like defunding the police. And this is sticking on Biden as well. Third, immigration, another issue Democrats traditionally do poorly on and the mainstream media's way of dealing with this is by not talking about it. They'd rather talk about Kevin McCarthy and who said, what about Trump? That's more fun for George Stephanopoulos, former Clinton operative, and now theoretically uh, somehow an objective journalist. Incredible. No conflict of interest there. But George and others don't want to talk about immigration. They'd rather talk about who said, what about Trump? This is Biden's election. He's been in power two years in terms of the midterms. He owns this one. And immigration issues are killing the Democrats because they're getting rid of the COVID restrictions that kept immigration partially down. Now what's already a good stream will become a flood. And this is rebounding against the Democrats because people in the country, surprise, surprise, actually care about this issue, who again aren't Chardonnay drinking liberals hanging out with Nancy Pelosi. Fourth, Biden was hurt badly um, among policy issues by the debacle over Afghanistan. And we've talked a lot about this that it really ruined his reputation for competence. Until then, Biden's approval number was above 50%, which is, a, given our polarized society, a very good number. And people bought into Biden because they thought he'd be boring, moderate, capable, low-key, and above all, competent. Afghanistan showed the old Council on Foreign Relations team isn't that good because in, although they were absolutely right that it was well past time, decade past time, decades past time, leaving Afghanistan, and I partly lost my job over this, so yes, I do have some schadenfreude here. Um, beyond this, you have the fact that they could have just secured Bagram Air Base and had an orderly withdrawal and were incapable of doing that, while our $50 billion intelligence community somehow thought the Ghani government, which had no political legitimacy, I'd have the same political legitimacy. And the government melded away, despite the $50 billion intelligence agencies confidently predicting it would be in power for months more. 
and this all looked disastrous. We had to use Kabul, and ISIS took advantage of the chaos to be diabolical and killed some of our people and an awful lot of Afghans as well. And Biden's reputation for competence has never recovered. The numbers started going down and have not recovered from this loss over the way Afghanistan was withdrawn from. And th this has hurt him. Next, the wokeness issue. The election of Glenn Youngkin is extremely important socially within America because it combines a lot of things that suburban moms who voted for Biden in droves, this was his let margin of victory, was independent suburban educated women who tend Democratic, hating Trump's boorishness, who doesn't, and voting for Biden for his competence. But instead, during COVID, they saw what their kids were learning and not learning. What they were learning was some weird, woke idea that institutional racism is part of America, that we're inherently evil, that history isn't complicated, that there weren't people who freed slaves as well as people who owned slaves. And rather than look at all the racial progress that has been made, instead we looked at America with eight-year-old girls being told they were oppressors and eight-year-old black girls being told they're oppressed, terrible for both of them aspirationally. And again, a bunch of far left woke people trying to indoctrinate children while not teaching them how to read or do math where their scores are appalling. Everyone who has a child during COVID knows they have not been properly educated and no amount of grade inflation makes them learn anything. So a in-the-pocket Democratic Party, which is totally owned by the teachers' unions, for goodness sake, Randy Weingarten, head of the teachers' union, was sitting next to McAuliffe, the former governor, Terry McAuliffe, and candidate against Yunkin, sitting next to him and saying, basically, you're going to have to wear masks into perpetuity. So no face-to-face no -face learning. And when there is learning, it's indoctrination. And we're not going to teach you reading, writing, and arithmetic. But don't worry, we'll give everyone an A. This unease socially about wokeness, about this crazy notion of self-loathing. And as Elon Musk said, the far left hates everyone, most of all themselves, and countries and great powers that hate each other are unlikely to remain great powers for long. Most Americans just don't buy into this nonsense. And this is hurting Biden, who's embraced it in a woolly-headed way very badly. Then you add in the fact, and I don't want to go over this again, but Biden, and I knew the man a little bit when he used to come to Aspen events in Italy, he certainly lost a step. And the idea that he's talking about running for re-election she said, shudders down the spine of any person at 82. He can barely get around now. They shield him from questions from a compliant press corps. And he basically is the same as living in his basement as he did during the election. This does not what you need for the most demanding job in the world. None of the things I mentioned are going to change. Inflation rates are not going to dramatically go down. Crime rates are not going to go down. Immigration is going to get worse and not better. The Afghan debacles it done, baked into the cake. Biden isn't suddenly going to recover his mental acuity. And the woke people being fanatics are unlikely to stop being fanatics anytime soon. So for all these reasons, history, the presidential approval rating, which isn't budging, and these stubborn policy problems that are accumulating and not getting better, look for a tsunami. 30 to 40 Republican seat gain in the House and a one or two seat gain in the Senate, because Herbstein is right. If something cannot go on forever, it will stop. Democratic incompetence at present can't go on forever, and in the midterms, it will be stopped. There is, however, in conclusion, one bit of a glimmer of good news. All of these Republican gains will certainly tempt Donald Trump 
who's already broadly hitting he's going to run again, to run again. This guy with his negatives might be the one guy in the whole country who Biden can actually beat. In a recently issued poll by Reuters, two-thirds of the American public do not want Trump and Biden to run again. Once somebody, if you add their combined age, you're at about 160. They do not want these two old men from the past, a divided, bitter, partisan past to run again. And yet if you look at primaries, both would win very easily. Trump over DeSantis, who gets in the teens, where Trump is over 50, and Biden by well over 25 points over Kamala Harris, whose numbers are even worse than his own quite substantially. She's into the low 30s. And so although the American people don't want it, it looks like we could well get a rematch of Trump versus Biden. So any third party candidate out there, now is your chance, because most of the people don't want what's heading down the pike. And Biden's saving grace may be in doing so badly in the midterms, he tempts the one man he can beat back into the field. And that's where we are right now in America. But take our prediction to the bank. We're more than willing to stick our neck out early because these things will not change. And Herbert Stein is right. Roe v. Wade does help the Democrats. The number will now be more like 30 seats than 40. I agree, but I can see nothing else on the horizon that changes Herbert Stein's prediction. Look for the coming Republican tsunami. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed it. It's good to catch up with the Foreign Policy blog. For those of you who've enjoyed this, please do subscribe. And those of you who've subscribed, please do give the $70 we need, particularly now that we are a newspaper to the world. And we love working with Substack and talking to our community directly, as we do so very often. I love our interactions, guys. And I love the fanatical fact that everybody's reading it. Our numbers, the algorithms of what's going on are wonderful, and we will keep them coming. If I could have done this 20 years ago, I would have. We're spending more and more time with the community because I love doing this and bringing our newspaper to you. But for that, we need manpower, and for manpower, we need money. We're asking half an espresso a week, $70 a year, $7 a month, just $70 a year. Please do give now and please keep subscribing in the overwhelming rates that you are. And we will continue making the newsletter our success story together. Thanks ever so much. And I'll bring you the Sergio Leone as soon as I can.